Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? Hope everyone's doing well. Just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning, let people know. Go to ChampagneSharks.com and you get access to all the links related to Champagne Sharks. You can go there and find it all. And you can find where we are on social media, our products, all that stuff. Also, Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes. So definitely become a patron for $5 a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. And without further ado, here is the episode. Take care. So, hey, Champagne Sharks, how's it going? Uh, I'm excited to have this guest. I've been a fan of this guest since I saw a viral clip of him a couple of years ago uh, where you were. I don't remember who it was. And at this point, there's probably so many viral clips of you owning somebody <laughs> on BBC or British TV. But uh, Kahinde, Kahinde Andrews, Dr. Kahinde Andrews. I don't use doctor. I don't use it very often unless I have to. Oh, okay, okay. Well, <laughs> but, if you don't mind introducing yourself <laughs> and telling the people who you are in case they don't know. Um, yeah, so Kai and D. Andrews. I am Dr. Kai and D. Andrews, technically Professor of Black Studies at Birmingham City University. Um, but yeah, I don't work as I don't always use doctor unless I have to for work purposes. No problem. No problem. Just wanted to make sure that we threw it out there. But, you know, um, one thing that surprised me before we get into your book and what, what the book's about and everything, I didn't realize this. This came up incidentally while I was um, on your Twitter. I didn't realize that you are the first UK professor of black studies. Yeah, I mean, that just tells you how bad it is in the UK. Um, so we have African studies and we have Caribbean studies here, but they're like really colonial things, like proper. Like I've, I've been to a couple of Caribbean studies conferences and it's like going back to like 1960s Jamaica or something. Um, black studies is like about Africa. It really centers Africa and the African diaspora, um, really draws on a different kind of knowledge. And yeah, we just, this is the first time we've ever had black studies in the UK. And I'm fortunate enough to be the first professor. But, but again, it does tell you how far behind we are in the UK. And it's, and it's amazing because, I mean, one thing that's really amazing about it is, I only found this out recently, but uh, black people have been in London in significant numbers for a long, a long time. Not what I thought it, what I thought it was at first, where, you know, I thought it was mostly, um, you know, Jamaicans coming after. Uh, um, Second World War. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, do we have, I mean, Britain was the prime premier slave trading nation uh the for, well for the big for the part of slavery right and one of the things that britain did was kind of offshore slavery into the caribbean so that my family's from jamaica uh but there were people did bring enslaved africans to britain there were about up to i think by the late 18th century there were about eighty thousand um africans in something like that might be i might be overestimating don't don't watch it too much but there were thousands of africans in britain and if you go further back there's been uh africans in Britain for centuries. I mean, like literally going back to Roman times, there were Libyans, there was a Libyan emperor, uh, Severus Septimus. So there's been black people in the United Kingdom for centuries. And then more broadly, if you think about Britain, isn't just the islands, these little islands that I'm, I'm currently on. Britain was this massive empire. So even when I say my family was in Jamaica, they're only in Jamaica when it's part of Britain, right? They're only in Jamaica because uh, Britain has, has stolen them from Africa and taken them to the Caribbean uh, as the enslaved. So in some ways, we've been, we're always part of the nation, which is why we uh, migrated here after the war. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. So, I mean, it just makes it even more inexcusable that so few black studies, because it's not like it's a, a really new thing to to England to have uh, 
like but one thing i find interesting about uh european people in general uh particularly i mean white european is that they really do underestimate their own their own racism and i realized that especially when i traveled there it was very surprising like they will i've had um white people in europe ask me and what is it like in america so racist there we don't have racism here like like literally (laughs) say those words really yeah it's it's because because um the colonial violence was offshored. They didn't have to see it. It's not like in America where it's, it's settler colony. So, you know, there's a genocide of the Americas. You have slavery in America. After slavery ends, you've got you know, 200 years of African-Americans. Therefore, you have Jim Crow and you have, you know, this kind of really harsh forms of racial oppression in the nation. Whereas Europe, because everything was outside, was in Caribbean, was in Africa, was in India, all these things happened, right? They just happened thousands of miles away. And so Europeans can can pretend that they, they're not racist. Oh, we don't have racism because we don't really have black and brown people. It's a bit like when you have middle class people in the suburbs who say they're not racist, but they don't know any black people. It's exactly yeah. like that in Europe. Yeah, and this was like in the 2000s, so I think it was really easy because even back then, even America was starting to believe itself as post-racist. So that, I mean, that's all been unraveled uh, since, but... Uh, well, hopefully, I, mean, I think the Meghan Markle debacle should hopefully ever rebel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> e- exactly. You know what? Speaking of the Meghan Markle debacle, before we get to your book, this is something I found very interesting. And I don't know the extent to which it made a cultural footprint in England because, I mean, it's a show with a lot of British actors, but I'm not sure if it's an American production. I don't know if it's a joint production between England and America, but there's that show, Bridgerton. I don't know if you've mm-hmm. um, seen that at all or been acquainted with it i don't know how how much has penetrated uh, uk pop culture but are you aware of it yeah i've purposely not watched it but <laughs> it's uh, people are people are watching it here but yeah i've tried to avoid it it's got these fantasies where you could just if you put black people in somewhere it changes changes what it is no it's actually in some ways there's, there's it's one of the worst ways to bring black people into this history uh where we don't actually tell a different version of the history we just tell the same white version but just put some black faces in it yeah and one thing that's really strange about it right listen to this i actually um did watch it because i was supposed to um review it for something so i i did watch it and as i was watching it, i'm like okay this is very damaging this is weird but it's so surreal and presentist that i can push myself through it if i just imagine it as some kind of alternate universe or some alternative history where racism doesn't exist and it's <laughs> yeah. just some bad escapism which i still think is a damaging cultural yeah. project but whatever but then randomly in episode four they suddenly try to get socially conscious and they say you know the queen charlotte you know who who's black, who in, in reality wasn't like black in any meaningful way in the way that they portray her in this series, right? Yeah. But her her being black and marrying the, um, you know, king or prince or whatever he is, has allowed, I mean, the other black people having the conversation to be elevated and free from racism. And your choices, uh, talking to a black guy in, the, in this thing, and his choice involved um, marrying a white debutante, and doing right by her uh, are in danger of ruining all that. And I was like, oh my God, like in 1800, uh, you're really selling the fiction that just one successful black person marrying a, a successful white royal Mm. can eradicate racism for a whole society right after the Meghan Markle debacle <laughs> just happened in the 21st century. And you- yeah, that's bad. Man. No, it's bad. It's a fantasy. These things are... It's actually a, a book, I'm, the book I'm currently writing, like right there writing, is called The Psychosis of Whiteness. And what that came out of was looking at uh, movies, British movies about slavery. 
So we only have like two. Like we really Britain imagine that Britain has only ever made two movies about slavery. One of them's uh, about William Wilberforce, who's the white man who supposedly ended the slave trade, and the other one is a movie called Bell. And Bell, oh, yeah. have you seen Bell? I mean, that, oh, oh honestly, yeah. one of the worst ones ever seen. Like, so that, that woman has a weird body of work in general. Have you seen yeah, her I mean, other stuff? Yeah, she did a thing about a, a black woman who falls in love with a Nazi or something. Yeah, she did <laughs> yeah. that. I think she had a third problematic one, which I which I forget. But she's got something going on with her. I don't know what it is. Yeah, it's, but she. I had this into, and we made a documentary actually called "The Psychosis of Whiteness," which basically makes this argument that whiteness is so delusional you can't really compare it to anything other than psychosis. It's, there's, there's just no rationality behind it. And these movies are like the hallucinations, if you like. And there's this interview with Amara Santi where she's talking about why she made this. It's basically a bell a period drama with a black woman where they just make up things about slavery completely ridiculous to tell a completely wrong story and her, her, her argument was oh she wanted to have uh, put black women into the story and have like this you know this this Jane Eyre Austin, Jane Austen kind of like tale this romance story for black women in the in the 18th century I'm like why would you think that would be a positive thing to do oh but that's kind of the idea of I, I feel like history now is like fan fiction like the difference between his non-fiction and fiction is kind of just blurred it's just very kind of self-gaslighting like people just kind of care what makes them feel good so we have that here with uh hamilton where people were saying oh now that black people get to play and other minorities get to play the, the founding fathers it gives us a chance to be part of the story it's like no they were always a part of the story like, like, yeah. like they were there from the beginning you just yeah. don't want to accept the part of the story that they were because you really want to believe that uh you, you want to seat at the table that badly you know yeah it's really it's really damaging honestly like it's so damaging to think that we should be looking at black people in this time, but tell them, tell there's so many stories you could tell. This is not the way to do it. And it, it does just further. And I think I, I, this is why I actually quite like that example, because whiteness is not just for white people. You know, Amara Santi is uh, Ghanaian family. She's black. Or she, what would Malcolm say? It's left her mind in Africa. I think it's the technical term for that one. Exactly. And and also what people don't gotta realize too is they pretend like one thing they like to do uh is that a lot of these like kind of white reactionary alt-right type trolls will be online and those are kind of guys who are kind of insecure in their manhood or feel like uh, whiteness isn't giving them the life today that it would have given them in the past and they're kind of complaining that whiteness is not what it was cracked up to be anymore like they feel like they lost out on something those guys will be online complaining i can't believe you made george washington black and this <laughs> that and because of that these people will really feel like see we're really striking a blow against racism look at all these white male tears but really in the bigger picture they're really helping uh white supremacy because it retroactively kind of makes it seem like racism wasn't that bad if you watch Bridgerton, you really think, okay, the UK wasn't that bad. They let black people party, intermarry, <laughs> go to all the best parties, uh, hold title. You look at um Hamilton and you just, just kind of think, okay, there was one or two bad guys. But for the yeah. most part, these were just cool dudes. Like, like white people love that. That's why Dick, Dick Cheney and uh, Mike Pence lo love going to <laughs> Hamilton as much as Obama does. It's it's yeah, that's really it sticking it to white supremacy at all. No, not at all. It's 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 way, it's way worse. I think this is one of the things we think about race, and especially now where you know there is a lot more discussion in the mainstream, at least, about race and racism and books coming out and things like 
Richardson, etc. Just because we're talking about race does not mean it's a positive thing. There are many ways to talk about race and racism which actually make it worse. And unfortunately, those are probably the, the majority of the ways that are addressing the issue now. And yeah, that's just one good example. Yeah, you, your chapter, The Non-White West, I think um, is a good overlap with that topic. But I mean, the book in general is called The New Age of Empire. I actually did not know about this book when I um, reached out to you. It was a pleasant uh, surprise. I was actually going to talk about like previous writings and then your people told me, oh, he has a new book coming out. So I was like, oh, perfect. I'll wait. I'll wait for that. And I have to say this book was for 200 pages. You cover a lot. I'm really impressed. You can get this much information and this many topics in 200 pages. My only beef is I looked at the UK version. I came across the UK version by accident and that cover is so much better. I don't know really? why. Why is the US cover? I don't know. It's just so bright and colorful. Like, I don't know. That one, maybe it's the grass is greener thing. I don't know, but it just <laughs> looks I'm so prepared. cool. I prefer the American one. I'm not going to lie. I, I, the, the, the British one. I do like it. It's different. It's, it's got like a Columbus on the front and it's, it's more colorful and it's grown on me. The American I mean, one's old school. Classic's classic, right? Yeah, yeah. It's very old school. But I don't know that that British one, maybe you're right. Maybe it looks the subject, maybe it makes the subject matter look too happy or something. <laughs> it's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like them both. I guess they're different. I guess. <laughs> yeah, I like them both too. I think it might just be a grass is greener thing, but yeah, I mean the other one's almost like pop art. The the difference is so stark. It's, it's so interesting. But yeah, if you can give us a summary of the of the book. Um. Yeah. I mean, basically, what I wanted to do was to because we do take racism really lightly. Uh, I wanted to trace back and say, well, actually, look, white supremacy, racism is the defining feature of the West. That's what makes it work. That's what makes it different. Um. And if you trace back to uh, Columbus is on the front of the UK book because Columbus is just really important that, that when Columbus sails the ocean blue and goes the wrong way and finds um, his, what they call Hispaniola, you know, that really unlocks uh, everything that happens afterwards, right? The genocide in the Americas, uh, slavery. At this point, the West is behind everywhere. Europe's behind everywhere. Europe's literally backwards. Europe is behind everywhere in the world. But that move into the Americas really unlocks um, the wealth that you have. It allows slavery to happen. This generates wealth and gold, all the commodities like sugar, etc. And then that is what then enables the West to build industrialization, democracy, etc. So I was trying to get rid of this idea that the West is this benevolent, wonderful thing, which is around politics, um, political revolution, scientific revolution, just revolution. And actually say, no, no, before all of that happens, there's serious white supremacy, colonial violence. And that is still the framework that we have today. So nothing's really changed. And when we see racism today, um, it's the same system that's happening. It's just happening in a different form. Now, I opened and read the book without really knowing much about it outside of the title and the um, subtitle, How Racism and Colonialism Still Rule the World. And the thing that impressed me about the book, I was able to read it in a weekend, basically. Uh, Not a weekend of reading it like, you know, here and there, but just like Mm. of of plowing through it, of just doing nothing but that. So I was able to read it because you keep it in a very conversational way. tone like i've read a lot of books that kind of cover similar topics not all in a single book but for example there's a lot of stuff in here that i think uh similar to stuff that say frank woolerton talks about with Mm -hmm. afro pessimism about how black 
it's kind of like a bottom cast in a way and everything. But mm-hmm. I mean, one problem I have with a lot of these types of uh, scholars is even though I really like their work, with the exception of Frank Willison's memoir, I think he kind of did this as a corrective, but mm-hmm. sometimes it's just too academic and too yeah. hard to penetrate for a lay person. So I'm like, oh, this is a great book, but I cannot just give this to just anybody, you yeah. know? Whereas yours, I'm assuming it has to be a, de- a deliberate choice since you are an academic uh, to make it this this readable and accessible in how it's written? Um, yeah, 100%. I mean, I think this is one of the things I really is happy to hear that because we have these debates in academia, but so the books are they're difficult to read. They're really impenetrable. And one of the re- things I don't like about acad- academia is that, is that honestly, so much of this time that we're writing, we're really writing for white elite audiences. Now, if you write in a way that nobody can understand, what's, what's the point, right? Um, and so I did make a specific effort, going back to Probably Back to Black, my last book was about black radicalism. To say, well, let's see, let's let's let, let's try and ha- can you have this complex argument? Can you bring in all this stuff? Can you explain it? You should be able to. Everybody should be able to engage in this. And so, and this is one of the things about black studies actually that we've really taken on board. It, it, it uh, where I work at Melbourne State University is that you know, my if you look at my who's the reference I always use, who's the people I always look to, it's not academics. It's it's Malcolm X, it's Claudia Jones, it's the Black Panthers. Um, it's saying that the reason we write this stuff is for people to engage with. So we have to write in ways and talk in ways that people can engage with. Otherwise, I, I don't really see the point spending that much time writing a book that only other academics can read. Uh, I want to ask if you've had, because I'm reading a lot of stuff in this book, and the book is 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 provocative. We don't really try to pull too many punches or hold white ally hands too much. Like I always say, there's this thing, uh, I've called it like the white ally industrial complex, where it's, it's just so, everything is so written for white for yeah. white allies. And you could tell even when you read it as a black person that this you're kind of an afterthought in, mm-hmm. in, the, in yeah. the text, you know? And yeah. you even kind of say in the last chapter that uh, it's not really about white allies. Like it's not, it's not, it's not about that. But, Interestingly enough, you do get a lot of penetration into the British British media, and I was um, interested in that. That uh, you get a lot of controversy. A lot of people get get mad at you. I see a lot of uh, hate <laughs> tweets, hate mail, hate letters. But they keep booking you. They keep putting you putting you on. And I was wondering, like, what what do you think that's about? Um, yeah, I guess it's yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that I would always say for the book and all the, everything that I generally write is for a black audience. Like straight up, it is. I think this book, I did try and make it. It's still, it's still a, it's still a very black radical book, but it looks at different things. So it looks at Britain, it looks at industrial, it looks around the world. There's, you know, using examples um, which are very different. So when I did Back to Black, uh, the big publishers basically said, "Nah, we don't want the book. It's too black." That was the actual, the actual feedback was too black. Um, whereas this, it's, it's just as black, but it's got different examples, right? Um, yeah, I feel like it's a broad audience, like. It's definitely made so that non-black people can read it and learn from it too. But I guess what I feel like, I didn't feel like an afterthought. Like, you know, like sometimes there's a general audience book I read where I feel like, okay, you're like 80% focused on the white people reading this. And I'm not even really figured in this at all. And and this, I felt, had a broad audience, but it was truly made for for everybody, including black people. Yeah, it's like what I would say. It's kind of, there was a... Uh, there's a- Black studies professor, black psychologist um, William Cross, who talks about black studies is the uh, the app, the basically how you get to the universal through the particular. So you come through a black lens, and this book is very much through that black studies lens. But and it has been really widely received because it touches on so many different things. And I think that would be the message generally is that if you see, if you look through a black radical perspective, it changes the way you see everything, and it is different. And that's really important way to look at the book. 
And that's what I tried to do the book. Oh, and I want to give you a chance to finish the question about how you get on. Yes. I mean, finish your answer about how you get on so many uh, platforms. Um, yeah. So again, then I think what, <laughs> why do I get on so many What? Oh, well, it's too, well, I guess the main reason would be that we do, we are in the middle of the culture wars, same way as in America. If you look at the platform, which I often get invited on, like we have Good Morning Britain with Piers Morgan, who got chased out of America. Um, and, <laughs> you know, there is this, you know, they'll get me on to talk about ridiculous things like the national anthem and not like taking a knee, like just song, like songs like Guru um, Britannia, which is a terrible song. If you look at the topics they're getting me onto this, because it's literally, they want a spectacle, right? They want, they want somebody who will come in, make it plain, <laughs> just, just not, not back down, be really clear, right? Um, and they'll get somebody who's usually nowadays they've started getting black people who disagree with me. This is the, the new thing that we have there oh. but they were right this is they get like bloggers they'll be just random bloggers they'll put up as though uh, somebody blogs on youtube is has the same level of conversation as a professor but this is the world we live in right so <laughs> but also it's kind of a, it's kind of a little commentary in how they view black studies i think deep down oh yeah way. totally oh completely it's, it's they're taking it for for jokes in many ways um so in some ways i like i don't even know why i still do it but then when i if just randomly in the street there'll be random black people who will call to me and, and just say go on prof i saw you on this it was great to see you and hear this because you know unfortunately we don't have massive platforms in the uk really and you know most of the conversation about race is i'm saying it's trivial and ridiculous but that is most of the conversation that is had and so black people watch this stuff and they're engaging with this and they they actually do get something out of having someone there just making it play saying it saying the things they feel saying that stuff um so again, even when i'm on this channel even though i know there's a there's a reason they have me on it there's an audience that just i just get lots of abuse there's another audience of us where this is actually still useful and if as long as it's still useful I'll, I'll keep doing it i mean honestly i would not have found you if not for one of those viral clips so i mean it does work you yeah know, exactly cause, yeah because yeah, then it led me to the, it led me to this book so i, I mean, the one of the reason i asked that is because i feel like in America, there used to be this kind of market for black thinkers who were really kind of almost antagonistic to the white supremacist project, you know, and you would have people like um, Malcolm X, Khalid Muhammad on, on Donahue in the in the 80s and all this stuff, like um, really like provocative people. Some people would even, you know, go on stage and call like the audience genociders and all this stuff. I mean, they used to really be this kind of thing where people would let you kind of debate and and do all this stuff. And what you described about how they have bloggers on to go against you, there's a bunch of clips on YouTube of Malcolm X having to speak to like uh, black people who were there to kind of represent a more um, accommodationist view when they put him on mm. on those platforms versus those people. I mean, a better thing is like they weren't on the blogger level. At least they tried to bring <laughs> better caliber of, of uh, you know whatever. But n- we now don't, we the- don't have enough bla- we don't have enough black people in the UK for them to have uh, people <laughs> <laughs> people who believe that nonsense here are like credible. The the uh, what's crazy what's crazy now is I feel like even the supposed agitators now in the US media really have a very benign palatable to white liberals um take on so-called like like revolution like you know i don't yeah. really the closest i think there was for a second really was um ta-nehisi coates when it came out mm-hmm. the reparations thing and then i feel like they kind of co-opted him pretty quick and what i mean by that is like they never they just have him writing um superman movies now it's, it's just the weirdest <laughs> thing they didn't really discredit him or tear him down they just dangled like you know some marvel money at him and 
<laughs> that's what he does now. Yeah, no, he's interesting because there is certain because like one of the things I always say about it, if as much as I don't like Good Morning Britain, I say it's probably spectacle. It is one of the shows that talks about race all the time, like all the time with discussions, and we can we can debate how good those discussions are. But there is actually a general interest in the area, and maybe some of it's negative, positive, but mostly it's been like if you look at the liberal media, we're supposed to be more positive it's, they don't really talk about it at all <laughs> this is not it's very difficult to even have those conversations um and you're right it does kind of become really liberal and there's a and it's, and it's so what's so funny about industries it so much depends on producers so like when there's we have a serious show news night in the uk and there was a producer that like really engaged with the work and i did whole back to black had a whole segment on the book um and it'd get invited on it all the time but then that producer moves and it goes back to yeah, we just kind of want this um mainstream kind of discussion um but at least with the kind of at least i guess the one good thing about the culture was is you can actually have a discussion about race because most of the more mainstream stuff are interested in really having a discussion at all which i think you're right is different right because you would have had maybe not in the uk you wouldn't have had this but certainly in america there was a massive appetite and in fact malcolm x malcolm x spent so much of his time talking to white people like just, that's where they made that's where the nation of islam made so much of their book because yeah i think there's something about the flagellation they want to get to to get called devils same with the same with the black Panthers. same with the black panthers like they eventually became kind of like toast of um the white liberal um party set in a way yeah and and unfortunately some of that is a bit performative too i think in in that it kind of looks good and it looks good if you can get if you can get somebody who's going to make you uncomfortable whether you take on their lessons and do anything about it is another question but i think there's always been a a market is that the right word a market for those kind of radical voices yeah yeah i i agree like you know people talk about the marketplace of ideas and i think in this neoliberal times that's more literal a metaphor than ever like it really is a marketplace of ideas but i think you also touched on something in passing with self-flagellation i think that's really a big part of it too i think it makes them but it's, it's like any submissive in a bdsm relationship they still want they still want to you to beat them in the way that they want if you if you if you beat them with the wrong whip or you know there's that safe word i think that safe word is like cancellation or or firing like you know that's that's safe word yeah but i think i I do think it is interesting that um so i write for the guardian paper a lot uh in in the uk and I cannot say, there's certain things I can't say in The Guardian at all. Like Psychosis of Whiteness, for example. I put that in loads of articles and they get caught out. Um, but I can go on Piers Morgan and drop that all the time. Not, they're, they're, it's just really strange, actually, in a space where you think it would be more restrictive, you actually have way more freedom to just say whatever, right? Whereas in the liberal way, there really is a packaging of it. Like you can say this, you can't say that, that's too much, that's not too much, etc. Um, which I think shows us part of the problem. Yeah, I mean, in general, I feel like liberals judge everything by discord and agreement and getting along and the appearance of civility so in the i feel like we're just just with everything at least in, at least in america but i'm sure in the uk as well they uh like their biggest problem with trump really was that he was so coarse and crude joe biden you know still has the cages still has everything and there were people tweeting like a lot of liberal commentators and pundits saying you know um we still have the cages. This is something somebody really tweeted. Like they still have the cages, but you know you have to understand uh, they're better now because now uh, there's not this antagonistic tweeting going on about mm. them. I'm like, wait, so that was the problem with the cages that somebody was <laughs> just just talking like an ass about them, not just having them quietly. And yeah, yeah. 
No, you're right. Yeah, you're right. Actually, the, the, that kind of consensual nature is not what we need. And one of the things I actually enjoy going to Piers Morgan in particular, it kind of shows you like it, he's quite a good representation. This kind of right wing, rabid, racist nonsense that I get when I say something reasonable. That really is Britain. Like that's that's the truth. That's the reality. And I think sometimes showing that is good because then people really understand. Like same thing with Meghan Markle. People were all celebrating. This is what Britain's changed. Isn't it wonderful? Da, da, da. Now you see the reality. Sometimes you need to see the reality. I have a weird theory about Piers Morgan from across the pond. And just the context that I keep seeing him in is I have an elaborate theory that he's like a left wing plant (laughs) and that he's just been put there to just uh, inadvertently promote, um, you know, a lot of rack. Because so many people I discover from Piers Morgan getting kind of owned by them. Like I came across, (laughs) I came across Ash, uh, Sankara yeah, drew yeah, Piers yeah. Morgan. Mm-hmm. I, one of the clips that I um, found you through, I, I think, was uh, Piers Morgan. I just keep finding all these interesting people. <laughs> and a lot of times he'll be on the losing side of the argument is, is, and or he'll be tweeting something that's so stupid and someone will give yeah. him a history lesson in the replies on Twitter. And I just start thinking, like, I wonder if it's, on some level this guy's a plan. I mean, I know he's really not. It's, it's, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm semi-tongue-in-cheek, but he kind of, in a way, I think, does help the discourse inadvertently even though he harms it in a way as well yeah but if he didn't have that show him and that show and he wouldn't have these people there's so many people go through that and then because there is no other space to have that conversation honestly i can't think of another space on tv british mainstream tv that i can say psychosis of whiteness the british empire is worse than the nazis every time i go on the show i think of something to drop in it you just, there's no other space to do it and it is, like you said, it is a way to, to show, to demonstrate, to call attention to. And it actually works quite well. Uh, you know, the more I think about it, I think maybe that's a difference that I'm thinking of is that uh, the way you describe the liberal media is kind of like how I feel about the U.S. media. I think the problem is the U.S. media is all basically like the liberal media in the U.K. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that we have that, you know, is really unabashedly um, conservative is Fox. But Fox mm-hmm. has given up. Like these have the fair and balanced thing, and then yeah. at some point they just gave up the pretense of like they were never like truly fair and balanced. You know, like they were conservative, but they did yeah. used to actually have some interesting left wing and radical thinkers on to kind of spar with. You know, yeah. and of course they'd paint them in bad faith or try to shout them down or whatever. But you used to get some pretty interesting um, viewpoints and arguments because they'd be they would be more willing to put on somebody radical than um, the liberals who, to me, wanted to have a kumbaya type mm-hmm. of appearance. And now that Fox doesn't want to do what Piers Morgan is doing anymore, like Fox just wants to do a Trump... Well, I don't know what they're going to rebrand themselves as now, but for a while, Fox just wants to do nothing but glorified Trump rallies, you know? <laughs> yeah. Don't even have an opposing voice uh, at all. I think that's probably why the U.S. media is so, is so bad. It's nothing but that liberal model that you're talking about across all cable news now. Yeah, no, that's a shame because it really does, it really does shut down debate. And what I would say, actually, I don't give a shout out to Good Morning Britain people, is actually talk to the producers. That, that's who you mostly talk to. They're actually some really interesting people who actually genuinely are and get, they, you know, they're actually interested and they want to put these debates out there and they want to see. So I think there actually is a, there is an attempt. I think there is, on, on the side of that, there is a genuine attempt to get different voices on there. I mean, <laughs> then what happens afterwards is another thing. But at least there's a space to have those discussions, which honestly, there isn't. They, like you said, in the States, I don't, that, that seems to be shut down as well. Now, I can't remember if I said this 
off air before we started recording or if I said it on air, if I said it on there already, then, you know, excuse me to the audience for repeating myself. But like what we try to do with these interviews is not just, you know, summarize the book and make it like a book report so people can feel like they don't have to read the book. We try to like take the book's ideas and, you know, talk about the book, but also kind of talk about modern issues and other things that you know, relate to the ideas of the book. But I do feel like we probably went too far in one direction, not the other. I do I do want to have some discussion in the book. And that's and that's and that's my fault, not yours. I wanna uh I want to uh kind of talk about the scope of this book. Like you start with the enlightenment and which have you ever have you ever um heard of or read a book called uh Yurugu? Yes. Yeah, by Marimba uh, Annie, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think Marimba, Marimba, Marimba Annie. Annie. Yeah, Marimba Annie. Yeah. yeah, great, great book, but it's a very challenging read. It's a very challenging read, and I kind of felt like your thing about the um, Enlightenment was a very easy to penetrate kind of um, entry into like that book's that book's uh, thesis. I don't know if it was done independently or if you were influenced by that but i did like i did like the enlightenment as white identity politics thing the idea of uh whiteness being like the, the elevation of the concept of reason above all the infallibility the infallibility of reason and and science and i would love if you could talk about uh that because i think it's one thing you got kind of a lot of flack about as well right the idea of the enlightenment as white identity politics or as a racist yeah. project the one time i trended on twitter was when i went on Newsnight actually and said that um uh, Emmanuel Kant was a racist, which is, I mean, this is so obvious. Anybody knows anybody think about Emmanuel Kant. I go, it's awful. And, I, and before I wrote the book, I kind of knew the general tones of this debate. But when you actually get into the get into it, the devil really is in the detail. I mean, the Enlightenment just it can't be coincidental. That all the Enlightenment scholars have really clear racial theories. And literally, all of them believe that white people are super, superior, Africans at the bottom, and there's a version of a hierarchy in between. They all agree that only white people can think, that only white people can reason. So that's why I called the chapter, I'm white, therefore I am. Because actually deeply rooted in the idea of the enlightenment is only white people can think, only white men specifically um, can think. And you, that's that the whole framework of knowledge is white supremacy. And the idea that you could separate that and say, well, actually, well, no, but, you know, reason's still just not white and, you know, freedom and all that, that's not white. You can separate that from the from. The racial theory is, it's not, it's, I'm sorry, it's nonsense. It's completely and utterly uh, nonsensical. The whole concept of the Enlightenment is white identity politics. The idea that whiteness is superior. Um, and it is a promotion of the idea that whiteness is superior, is superior. And the fact that that is still the intellectual framework we use tells us that we still think whiteness is, is superior. Yeah. And I mean, some of the stuff was, um, I mean, I'm used to a lot of these old thinkers having racist, racist quotes, but a lot of the stuff that Kant said was actually like downright stupid. Like even <laughs> for even for the te- the tenor, because one of the big things everyone tries to say is, "Oh, it was their time. It was their time." But I'm I think even for his time, it just seems. And, and there were people, and you cite them who argued against him and everything. But but yeah, he had some really crazy crazy theories. I was I was kind of surprised because I know he's supposed to be a very um, bright thinker in philosophy. And one thing that came to my mind is like. Sometimes like white supremacy can make um, even people who are smart and are undeniably brilliant in other contexts um, into total morons. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I think that's the problem with someone like his actual racial theory is completely absurd. Uh, it revolves around uh, heat 
and climate, and this makes apparently makes um, black people's skin thicker. So it's actually one of the quotes I use in the book is when he actually writes down instructions of the best way to beat an enslaved African because he's saying our skin's too thick, so whipping isn't gonna isn't gonna help. You have to use a stick, right? And this is gonna make the blood draw out us better, apparently. Um, if he's, he's also he took it universally when he said universal reason he actually took his racial theory universal and theorized that the further away if you found aliens the further away they were from the sun uh the more stupid they would be right this isn't based on anything it's just all this nonsense he made up um and then the, the best one which not just can actually a lot of the enlightenment thinkers um were trying to work out why uh enslaved africans who lived in the house uh were lighter than those who lived in the field now, this is obvious, I would have thought, right? Empirically pretty obvious. But no, it wasn't about rape. It wasn't about anything like that. What they what Kant particularly theorized was their proximity to white people uh, basically made uh, black people turn white. I mean, this is, I mean, this is absurd. Like, it's, why, why would you trust this guy uh, with your moral theory? It just didn't seem like a very sensible thing to do to me. Yeah, and one thing that was interesting that you point out in the chapter is that he was doing this without any type of, I mean... F- the whole conceit of the Enlightenment is that it's all about observation and experimentation and testing, and it's the uh, birth of empiricism as the primary mode of uh, gaining knowledge, and everything's about if you can't experiment it, if you can't test it, it doesn't um, count. Like all inquiry, all philosophical inquiry is meant to, you know, lead to, um, you know, testing science 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 mm-hmm. and he was just making stuff up out of whole cloth but on top of that there were plenty of people who actually were doing um studies and had evidence that was available to him and who even kind of uh contradicted him and went against him and he was still like no i'm just gonna stick with this <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like, like that's that's good like the evidence was out there it wasn't like he couldn't go to a source and find better information he just was like, no, I'm just going to sit with this thought experiment in my head and then commit it to yeah. paper. Yeah, no, and, that, and that's the thing. That, that, that there's this, I, I think I quoted this couple of these in the, in the book. There's um, these defenses of Kant, you know, the available evidence to him. Not a complete nonsense. In fact, one of, I think it's James Tobin who's, uh, who actually went and, and actually talked to enslaved people and actually was around enslaved people and said, no, nah, this is all nonsense. And Kant, who was in Germany, just said, no, nah, you're right. I'm just going to discount that and keep the things which I think are important. And you see that for, not just with um, Kant, but with all the Enlightenment philosophers. It's this perfect example of how actually, and it still happens, we'll use the data to justify the theory. It's not the other way around. This is how you get racial science, right? Racial science becomes, um, bec- and it has its roots in the Enlightenment, but the idea that you can measure schools, et cetera, et cetera, you know, they're just making things up, right? It's not actually justified, but they make it up and they then they carry on as though it's real. Yeah, and that's kind of the problem with uh, science and the Enlightenment's uh, elevation of it and its idea about it is this idea that it takes human error out of it. It almost is like uh, just this objective, almost machine-like, dispassionate thing. But at the end of the day, and you you kind of mentioned this as well, that uh, science is subject to human interpretation, uh, to human... human choices like what evidence do you keep or discard what do you um discount and science can be as propagandistic or uh, mistaken as as anything else like just because you're observing and measuring things doesn't mean you're observing and measuring it right and even if you do observe and measure it right it doesn't mean you're going to draw the right conclusions um from it but part of the problem with this enlightenment thinking is it kind of cloaks your biases in this um era of infallible object 
objectivity like like science says not me science says it's not it's not my fault yeah. it says what it says and it's wrong yeah. a lot that's why it's dangerous right because we have this kind of universalism this idea of rationality uh, this idea of science which presents itself as not being racist but is entirely racist and, and based in right supremacy and unfortunately that is still what we use today right so a good example would be well, just look at global inequality. This is a clearly white supremacy. Africa is the poorest part of the world. The white place is the richest part of the world. There's a hierarchy in between. But the global, the body, the UN that deals with global, with, um, global inequality never talks about racism, like ever. Like it's not in the discussion. It's not there. They never talk about it. Even though the observable facts are very, very clear, we just completely rejected it because we have this, um, because we, we kind of imagine that racism doesn't matter. And then we act as though it doesn't matter. Um, and then by doing that, we reinforce the idea that it doesn't matter. A big thing I like about your book is um, when like black studies is an interesting thing because it's not really a universal um, from what I can gather a universally like a universal curriculum. Like if you look at different places, how they teach it and how they cover it, it can very it can vary very much from place to place. And like, for example, some places seem to be very big into kind of making black studies just the study of black black thinkers and which i think is a very worthwhile um project in and of itself not uh disparaging that project but i feel like a lot of times it doesn't really study a lot of the um white thinkers or a lot a lot of the uh canon and and the um a lot of the western canon and how these kind of racial formations get um created in the in the western canon and like what white people write and think and and believe because so much of blackness comes comes from that i mean the idea of blackness and and whatever and you um spend a lot of time covering covering white uh thinkers in here i was wondering if that's something that is um a focal point in the black studies program at your university or is this something you kind of bring to bring to this um book more but i was i was kind of i was kind of curious about that there's, there's you know if you if you go into the uh, notes part in the bibliography you cite like a lot of white thinkers use a lot of their, their quotes to kind of show like how messed up like like in general i think there should be like even a whiteness studies uh i, th- I know some universities are even even doing that but like whiteness is kind of treated as default and normative and you yeah. just and it's like air or water and and it gets kind of ignored in a way yeah I mean, I think actually, so critical whiteness studies has become a sort of cottage industry now in some ways and not in a good way. I don't mean that. But if you actually trace the history of uh, critical whiteness studies, it really is black people, right? It really does come out of black studies because we have to understand white people. That's life and death. <laughs> we have to know what's going on, right? So yeah. if you go back to like Du Bois is kind of the first to talk about um, the wages of whiteness. If you can go further back, um, oh, what's the, I can't remember the guy's name. I see uh, David Walker's Appeal. It's like to the colored people. It's like 19th century. He's got this whole thing about whiteness. Obviously, Malcolm talks about whiteness. Um, the Panthers talk about whiteness. We have to do it because we have to understand it, like because that is life and death. And so, Black Studies is in many ways a critique of. So, we, where I got this from is a critique. Black Studies is a critique of those kind of universal values. Critique of um, particularly how you do research, what research is, what knowledge is. So you have to. I think I think we we have to do that uh, to carve out a space and say what we want to do. One of my critiques of black studies would be, you know, black studies isn't, can't, shouldn't, maybe. Black studies shouldn't just be the, let's just study black people, because, I mean, that's interesting and important, but if you're just studying black people in the same way that white people study black people, I'm not sure what the point is. Um, the point of black studies is, there's that is certainly part of it, but it's to say that we have to use that knowledge to make the world better. It is putting that knowledge into practice. It is the community component. It is 
um, that's what for me what Black Studies is, and without that element, I'm, I'm not sure there's a point in the project. Um, so there's so many there's so many topics in in your book. I'm trying to think where even to. I mean, to give an idea of the breadth of this book, there's like you know, it starts in it starts in the Enlightenment, uh, then it goes to slavery, genocide, colonialism. Uh, use the term settler colonialism, which 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 I love. Um, no, the the Holocaust. I mean, and by the time it ends, it's at it's at Brexit. It, it's uh so I mean, time wise, it it covers it covers a lot. But you go into like just about every continent. You go to Australia, South Africa, um, North Africa, East Europe, West Europe, uh, China, and it's um it's fascinating how many different topics and times you can cover without really giving a short shrift to to anything. You know, it's uh, I was wondering like how long it took you to write and organize, <laughs> organize the book because I, I feel like it's very it's very hard to cover this much stuff but be so uh, almost surgical. Um, yeah, it took a lot of time. <laughs> it was a mistake because I did I did want to because we have so many books about racism which are national. Like you know, there'll be an American book about racism, a British book about racism. Um, guided by Malcolm X, that racism is not an American problem; it's a world problem. You can't understand racism nationally it's just it's literally impossible this is a global system and so i did make an effort to say well let's bring in as many different parts of this as possible as many different examples as possible um but why it was as able to do that um because actually as an as if i'm talking to my students i'd always say depth is is better than breadth you don't need to talk about everything just talk about a couple of things so i kind of went against that but why it's possible is because the framework of it's really clear right the logic the logic of empire white supremacy uh, black and brown life is disposable and once you've got that as the kind of the backbone of it then you're kind of easy to say well here's an example that ties into something today here's an example which connects this to what happened before so it took a long time to organize it but i think that's why it's still even though it covers a lot it still feels robust because the the, the basic argument is let's give you examples that say that the colonial logic of white supremacy is still very 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 much intact and we are still part and this is all one one thing and we can't look at it separately yeah, because I feel, ironically enough, a book that covers as much as this one does, I feel like it's almost, I would I would imagine, easier to have written it as a thousand-page book, um, mm-hmm. even though it's more pages, than to uh, keep it this tight. I feel like you have to constantly be trying to um, figure out what's the most important thing to keep in here, what's the most, what, what can be... Um, left out and you know left to the notes for people to like follow up up with on their own so yeah i mean it was a uh, it was pretty impressive it could remain it could it could remain this um robust um i also like that you had um i've never heard his name out loud so i don't know if i'm pronouncing it right but sh- but sh- but shake shake the up oh shake and to deal yeah shake shake and to the yeah. up i was very uh pleased that you cited you cited him because i feel like a lot of times too when people um, write in mainstream publications, they don't want to cite uh, sources like that. So I thought that was... That yeah, Shake and Tadeop is, I mean, actually a really valuable source of information. I mean, I, we can't... This is the other thing about Black Studies is we have to cite people like Shake and Tadeop and people like Malcolm, people like the Panthers. We have to bring them in as legitimate sources of knowledge. Because remember, we haven't been in universities. Like, it's kind of recent that was lots of us in universities producing stuff. Um, most of our knowledge is outside university. And actually what makes it makes it better, in some ways you could argue, is actually better because it is outside. So we have to not be afraid to cite, to cite widely. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of um, places don't want to do that. But but you talk about uh, how, and I never even thought about it until you said it, but it's true, this kind of idea that, you know, Greco-Roman civilization happened, which itself is a kind of a weird flattening because they were they themselves were very far apart. Then like mm-hmm. nothing happened. There was the Dark Ages. Then there was an 
in enlightenment, you know, and <laughs> that was that was it. And and I even like le- like leftists and white radicals a lot of times believe in these same types of um, myths of you know white enlightenment as the um, be all end all of of rationality and 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 great thought. And I thought that was I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, well, think about it. Marx is an enlightenment thinker. We always forget Marx. Marx is radical in lots of ways, but he's an Enlightenment thinker. He agrees with the same basic premises, agrees that capitalism is necessary. Um, he just really agrees. So, and this is the intellectual heritage of the left is Marx. So we shouldn't really be surprised um, that it that it is really based in white supremacy. But that's the biggest problem with Marx, right? Cedric Robinson says he imagines the white working class as the hero of history and then writes a whole theory to, to prove it, right? So yeah, once you include Marx as an Enlightenment thinker, that all makes a lot of sense, I think. And the modern white leftists have not let this go. Like they still kind of have this idea of almost a messianic idea of like the white workers going to bring everyone else, um, all the other um, non-white working populations, you know, along along behind them. When really, and you bring this up in the book, it's the non-white people, and not even like workers, but like peasants or farmers who mm-hmm. have done who have done more to uh, act on. Um, socialism than the white workers ever have. Yeah, I mean, that's the key thesis of uh, Robinson's black Marxism. Is you actually, well, if you actually want to find examples of, of Marxist revolution, you have to look in the other developed world. There really aren't any, there really aren't any of the of the white workers, right? It's the irony of the whole thing. Um, but but you're right, still, if you actually look at uh, what the left here, the white left is saying, they still have this messianic idea. My favorite part of the book, actually, that I haven't spoken much about in interviews, is like Occupy. Because Occupy is a perfect example of this nonsense, um, where there's just a, a lack of a lack of understanding your role. We say check your privilege. This idea that there's a 1% and a 99% and that anybody in the West is in the 99% is totally ignores the actual reality. You know, the biggest division basically in class, in class formation we should, is, are you in the West or are you not in the West? Because that completely changed 100% your entire frame framework. Like most people in the world don't have an indoor toilet. A child dies every 10 seconds because they don't have access to food. That's all in the underdeveloped world. That isn't here. The poorest person here is in the top 80% of earners in the entire world. But we still have leftists here going, you're part of the 99%. I mean, it's the kind of arrogance I don't know how we get rid of. That's kind of the problem with them. And whether it's like uh, uh, Sanders, Corbyn, Occupy, whatever, that lack of international scope is really uh, disturbing and also like sometimes you see a lot of these people you 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 talk to them they are like one or two generations out of like comfort you know and Mm -hmm. suddenly it's like this kind of this kind of crisis but they're still much better off than the rest of the rest of the world and there's no sense of context for them you know as to as to any of that you know and some of the things they say are crazy too Like, like you know like i don't know if you've seen this on on your side with Corbinites or whatever, but uh, one thing that really got on my nerves was with, um, and, and like, you know, I thought Sanders was like the best choice out of everything uh, given here. Mm-hmm. But one thing that really got on my nerves was the kind of idea where when they would complain about identity politics, a certain type of white leftist, they would always frame it as if, A, there were these um, white overseeing elites that were brainwashing um <laughs> working whites into being racist against almost against <laughs> their will like taking away their agency but then also <laughs> acting like black people and their identity politics were the biggest or just non-white people in general but particularly mm-hmm. black people their and their identity politics were the biggest obstacle to working um solidarity almost as if like there's these like 
uh, by the default, white working class people just itching for this kind of cross-racial um, yeah. coalition. But, you know, black people just keep listening to Al Sharpton and <laughs> and not getting on board. And that kind of drives you crazy. Like, uh, you talk about that a lot, but there's tangible benefits to, to whiteness. You, you mentioned that in the book. It's not just um, a word. Like, there's tangible material yeah, benefits to it. Yeah. And if we're honest, the left, like, when, so what, it's really, it's, it's fascinating that the, and this is where the kind of neoliberalism now here comes in. It really is when you have, uh, starts with Thatcher and Reagan, we start to have neoliberalism. You start to have the things that basically they've been doing to the other developed world for decades, uh, start to come into the West. And then the financial crisis is kind of that big tipping point where people feel uncomfortable and people, and, and there's poverty, et cetera. And this is when you start to get all these people on the left, oh, we're the 99%, da, 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 da. But if you actually look at what they're arguing for, they're just arguing for a return to what was before, right? Mm-hmm. Social democracy. Can we share out the spoils of empire better? They're not arguing for, let's deal with racism uh, around the world. Let's deal with the problems of the developed world. They're just saying, oh, we shouldn't feel this. We, we shouldn't be in this position and we want this to be solved. And I guarantee you, if you had some, if Bernie Sanders had won and you'd have some, you know, better redistribution of wealth in America, we'd very, very, very quickly stop talking about global inequality. We just would. We'd stop talking about it because this is about protecting white life, protecting the West. And that is really what the left has been always been about. Yeah. And that white quality of life that a lot of white leftists um, complain about, about losing, you know, uh, and you make this clear in the book a lot. A lot of it comes from the backs. I mean, this is a running theme of your book is that a lot of things come from exploitation of third world um or for lack of a better term i don't even know if that's even a proper term anymore but but yeah, you know third world could you say good term third world's a better term than developing world so yeah yeah uh that 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 basically that this that's where these resources come from like like what does what does europe have as a natural resource like dirt like like there's 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 nothing <laughs> you know like like there's nothing there you know that that the richest countries are the poorest uh, and the I'm sorry the the res- the resource richest countries are the poorest and the country that actually has no resources is is the richest is not not an accident it's it's exploitation it's a pro it's a pro appropriation and and like you say in the book even when they make a big deal about giving money back I mean giving money to these third world countries they're giving them back their own money really just <laughs> just giving them back what they stole and they want um a pat on the back for it. Yeah, like we only have this money to give in char- for charity because we've exploited it. And then charity is the, I mean, the cha- whole charity, maybe I write a whole book about this at one point, but the whole the charity industrial complex just makes things worse, but it makes us feel better, right? And yeah. I see, look, but I think, look, I, I, I don't want to say don't give to charity because obviously that's not, that's probably not the best thing. And there's, the Panthers talked about this idea of survival pending revolution. Like people are dying, you need to stop people dying. But let's not pretend, this doesn't make it better, this actually makes it worse. This can, maintains the dependency relationship between countries. If, if, if I have to give money here for, for uh, a well to be made in Uganda, that's awful. That's the problem. The problem is that the Uganda can't make its own wells, can't, can't support itself. That's the problem. So when we just keep making this a, a dependency relationship, it's based on the fact that they don't have, like the, the, the problem is that we're exploiting all the money from Uganda. That's the problem. And you have to fix that if you're actually interested in fixing the, the, the solution. And that's the part that they don't want to fix because that actually is going to take money out of their own pockets to a degree that they don't they don't want to do. And um, there's several topics here. I'm just going to kind of run through through a list to give you a chance, because I feel like we could talk all day. We tried to expand every topic in the book. But uh, you talk about I think this is okay. This is like a kind of a common theme through the book that reasserts itself through 
different topics. And I would say like the this larger theme is the idea and we and we've kind of used a metaphor on this show um that came to mind when I read your book about how uh someone lives in an apartment building and you know has this kind of naive idea that their apartment is its own universe and stuff. So they have a neighbor on the first floor on the other side of the building that they don't like. And they're on like the they're like on the fifth floor on yeah. This this other side of the building, and they're like, man, I really hate that neighbor. I'm gonna release like um, a whole bunch of rats and roaches into their apartment, and then you really think that those rats and roaches are just gonna stay in that person's apartment, you know? Yeah. And then like three or four months later, suddenly um, there's a bunch of rats and roaches in in your apartment, and you're like, how how did this happen? It's the it's that neighbor's fault, you know? Why is the place so dirty? And and you you also don't even know you're also shocked like you don't even know where where it came from. Like that you're shocked that things are interconnected. And that's a common theme um through through this about the chickens coming home to roost that mm. the things you allow to happen or not even allow to happen but create in other places, a lot of these white tragedies um and the a lot of these white tragedies that people lament happened because you either turned the blind eye to or actively created things in non-white places, you know. And one example is uh, the Holocaust and the idea of the Holocaust is modernity. If you could um, expand on that for a little bit, um, yes. Yeah, so no, I think this is the that the Holocaust really is what did Amy Cazare called it the boomerang effect. So if you put fascism. Racism and violence out in the world is going to come back or it's going to come home, right? So it comes back into Europe. And there's a book by Zygmunt Bauman where, you know, he's saying that, the, that we just completely misunderstand the Holocaust if we think that it is these evil Nazis who are totally outside of history and never again and all that. Because the Holocaust was the production of the way of Western modernity. And literally, what did it, was it based on? Racism, which is absolutely foundational, made by it by um, by the West, right? Um, science. I mean, it was a scientific slaughter of people and racial science in particular, but it's generally the methods from which they did it, um, again, came through uh, modernity. And then if you think about the concept of genocide, I mean, the, the, that life is just disposable in that sense. We'd seen that for centuries in the West, like the, just the laying to waste of people. And in some of the technologies like concentration camps, which were first used um, in Africa, in Southern Africa by the British. So all the to see the Holocaust as something separate is, is 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 madness. This is a this the only difference with the Holocaust is it takes what had been happening uh, for centuries outside of Europe and it comes into Europe with people that we think are white and then we get all appalled and go, oh, isn't this terrible? Um, but it it's, it's makes perfect sense within the, within the logic of the system. And another way in the, in that this is chickens coming home to roost or the stuff that you let loose. Uh, happening back here is the indigenous thing you talk about how the indigenous groups across the caribbean and the and america the americas you know uh a big thing two big myths are a that it was sparsely populated which which i totally believed i had no idea until Mm. i read your book that there were like millions upon millions of Mm. indigenous people on on all those shores and islands you know that that surprised me and this this one this one I did know before I read your book, but it's still a myth that persists today that, you know, they weren't uh, advanced as civilizations or or whatever, you know, like like they were all like uh, primitive and, and savage. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you see this, this sheer amount of people that were eradicated among the indigenous people, um, numbers that I didn't know until I, until I read your book, it's like you kind of realize it becomes kind of a almost a drop in a bucket what happened in the in the World War II 
holocaust like like once as a society you, you can get comfortable exterminating that many people like like there's a there's a precedent to it you know yeah exactly i mean yeah the, the founding thing of the west is this genocide which again, i was surprised so if in better black the book i wrote previous to this i think i had a bit in that I, I had to change when I, the second the paperback came out where i'd kind of written in this kind of sparsely populated place because it's so it's so embedded in how we think about it because we don't really talk about it at all and then when we do we kind of have this ah, it wasn't that bad if there were these um these, you know, backwards natives. But actually, the midpoint estimate of the amount of people killed, so it could have been higher, could have been lower, is 72 million in the Americas. 72 million people. I mean, it's it, um, nine, up to 99% of some populations are totally gone. And just as evidence that they were they were advanced, right, is the apparently the, pop, the temperature of the world dropped by two degrees after this genocide because the amount of people they killed, they... they uh, they stopped producing fossil fuels, right? Had a massive mm. impact on the, on the actual ozone. Like it's huge, right? So when that's how you start off, and then you, then it's not like after you've killed all these people, you, you stop, right? There's slavery. There's uh, massive. There's genocides in in um, Africa. Um, in fact, the pre-runner to the uh, Nazis was the genocide in that Germans killed. 250,000 people in southern in Southwest Africa, where they were Southwest Africa in Tanzania um, and Southern Africa. And so, yeah, once you once you have a bar- level of that level of bar- barbarity, you cannot be surprised when it comes home um, and, full- and blows back. And that's what Malcolm X was saying that was uh, kind of misinterpreted, either deliberately or whatever, by by the media when he said that uh, Kennedy getting getting uh, killed was the chickens coming home to roost, and what he meant was like you guys tolerated. Um, violence and you know um, violence with impunity as a solution to problems for so long in the, in America, you know, with frontier mm-hmm. justice, uh, lynchings, racial terrorism. That you know, it's only a matter of time before, like you know, those rats and roaches end up in your in your apartment. You know, where the chickens come home, mm-hmm. come home to roost. And either because they didn't understand it, or maybe they understood it too well, and it hit too close to home. It, <laughs> It really uh, messed them up. But I mean, there's a lot of interesting books. Like there's one called Accounting for Slavery that um, I was I was reading. And it makes a case that uh, a lot of the dehumanizing aspects of what we call uh, a worker culture, like all of management and the idea of um, worker culture came from innovations made, made from slavery in that um, management science was all things that they, I mean, because before then, like, you know, the world was just basically mainly um, agricultural and, and artisans and slavery mm-hmm. really kind of created the framework for what we consider, um, what we consider um, dehumanizing industrialization and um, the view of human, even words like human resources or human capital mm-hmm. are very, mm-hmm. very dehumanizing. And it wasn't making the point that being, being a dehumanized worker is, equivalent to being a slave but it was just kind of saying how um you know things that were taken for granted um in slavery that that came from the dehumanizing of people we eventually applied to dehumanize um white people white people themselves even yeah, if even completely. if on a smaller scale yeah completely and i think you usually look at all the technologies around work um but just look, look at neoliberalism the things we're complaining about privatization austerity uh this elite that's taking money and, and taking it out of the co- this is the what that's just the washington consensus that's what has been being done to developing countries underdeveloped world since the second world war and it's now we can't then be surprised when it comes back here and, 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 and attacks here it's always going to have that boomerang effect it's always going to come back um come back on you what you put out in the world what you reap you sow right and that, that's what we're seeing nowadays 
So yeah, you bring up um, Brexit as another another example, which I think is which I think is is really is really good. I mean, I mean, there's 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 so many examples. Like here's 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 here's, an, here's another one that is very interesting, and nobody picks up on this really. But all those um, racial shooters or bombers, actually, not even explicitly racial. Like people don't think about them a lot of the times. But for example, the Oklahoma City, um, those synagogue. Um, shooters, the people at the Muslim at the Muslim um, temples and mosques, and all these different people over the past couple of decades who have done some kind of mass violence. If you always look into their internet history or reading history, like for example, the Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh had the Turner Diaries in his uh, car, you know, which is a famous uh, white supremacist screed, you know, and that gets mm-hmm. underreported. But almost all of them were white supremacists in general and specifically had anxieties of like white genetic ni- annihilation um, mm-hmm. via either consensual or or rape, you know, with white mm-hmm. women and 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 black men and it, and it's almost a distinction without a difference because i always say like in the mind of a white supremacist all interracial um sex is, is rape even if it's <laughs> supposedly consensual it's uh yeah. whatever but it's it's it was interesting uh person by person some people make it explicit like dylan roof dylan roof the shooter in um charleston uh, explicitly said you guys are, are are raping all our women before he shot all those people you know mm-hmm. but it's kind of crazy because those weren't like young virile men he was shooting they were like old people <laughs> and and women and stuff like that it's it, but yeah. a turner diaries is full of that type of um fantasy um and not yet yeah, all these uh the columbine people were into white supremacist literature mm-hmm. and, and racist stuff which never gets reported but it's like it's almost as if if they were to admit that all these people have racism in common, uh, especially anti-black racism, uh, it would be almost like that same chickens coming home to roost thing. There's something about the West, the white West, that seems to have a lot of trouble with this chicken come, coming to roost uh, problem, I would say. You can find m- endless examples of them yeah. just drawing the line at that level of self-awareness. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, particularly if you look at the states, and as a set of the colony, it means that what you have to do, you have to have this really violent form of uh, rhetoric and ideas. I mean, up until sixties, probably the Ku Klux Klan were properly in, like you may have actually had Klan members in the government, but certainly they were influencing the government, right? So you kind of have that's a massive part of the actual way the state runs. Um, the idea of guns, like God, I think just think about gun ownership. Like, why is gun ownership so widely accepted? Because of black people, right? That's that's, that's that's why it's a racist thing that you would just accept that people walk around with guns uh, because they're terrified of black people, right? So you have this you have this perfect cocktail of these really violent ideas, uh, history present as well, um, gun ownership. So you have access to these things to go and to go and uh, commit this, um, and then it just creates this perfect storm where, where it happens. And like you said, it should be pretty obvious to see that connection. But if you acknowledge that connection, then you're acknowledging the racism that you saw. And you, so there's this, this way that you just don't want to do that, right? Like That's what I say with psychosis. There's, it's blatantly obvious, but you have to reject it because if you don't, you start to undo all of the delusions and then you have to actually start doing things differently. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's it crosses... I mean, and this is the things in the book a lot too about like you don't... I mean, one problem I have with like... Uh, Black Lives Matter, the American global 
version, the American national version, because I want to make clear a lot of the local um, organizations in Black Lives Matter actually do a lot of great work. And they're actually having fights with the national org um, because they don't like the way the national org is boring themselves. I don't know anything about Black Lives Matter UK, so I don't want to speak on them. But the American national organization has kind of become this kind of mascot to the liberals or the Democrat party. Like they have become very into this kind of vague electoralism and, you know, kind of relinquishing the the language of agitation and revolution. They're like trying to endorse candidates and really get in good with Joe Biden and get and get meetings and everything. And one thing I like about your book is that you don't really criticize one or two groups of white people while trying to be in the camp of another, like, like, like you're not trying to, uh, you know, like, like pretty much nobody's spared from conservatives to liberals <laughs> to, to Marxists to whatever. Like if you're, if you're white and in the West, you are, uh, up for your chapter, you know? And, <laughs> yeah. and, and I think that's important because a lot of what we're talking about, it's easy to target like the, the Brexit people. Cause you bring up Brexit as an example of, um, you know, chickens coming home to roost or we bring up um, school shooters or we bring up like Nazis. But I feel like even and you, and you make it clear in the book, the the left has their own chickens coming home to roost uh, problem, you know, and you can almost see it in a lot of things that the white leftists want that they can't get it comes from a lot of condoned racism and like the new deal and how and to this day there's a lot of people who would rather cut off their nose uh to spite their face like the idea that if any black person unjustly gets enriched is enough of a reason (laughs) to turn down this social program yeah no i mean it is it it is really important to remember that and i always just Malcolm, Malcolm again is both basically. I'm right. The next book I'm writing is about Malcolm X, the social theory of Malcolm X. And one of the quotes I love from Malcolm is when he talks about the the Southern Wolf and the Northern Fox. So the Southern Wolf, that's the Trump, right? It's obvious, openly racist, bears their teeth. You know, you know they're racist. You know what you're dealing with. Um, but the Northern Fox, that's that liberal who bears their teeth in a smile. They're still going to eat you. You still got the same problem, but you think that you're that you're a friend, right? And that's what the Democrats are. I mean, that's but I mean, Joe Biden, <laughs> Joe Biden. Come on, I don't know what to say. If you yeah. think Joe Biden is salvation, I don't know what to say. That, 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 there is no doubt that that's that's a that's a fox, right? But Obama was a fox too. It's not just a white thing. Obama was also a fox, right? Um, and I guess my problem with the national BLM would be, it's, honestly, it is a it's the it's the twenty first century civil rights movement. Which has its good things, right? It's reformist. Can you change things? Can you make pro- But we should have realized 50 years after the civil rights movement that that can only give you so much. It can give you a black middle class. It can give you black better, better representation. But the majority of people, in fact, this is a strong argument that with things like mass incarceration, black people are actually worse off in America today, collectively, than they were in the 60s. So we should have realized that this reform thing don't work. Um, that going between the fox and the wolf don't work. We need to build an alternative. That's that's right, kind of what the book is saying. There's no salvation in this system. I'll say I'll say this last thing. Uh, it's a passage from your book, and then I'm just going to ask you to just sum up your thoughts on anything that you know you want people to know about your book that we didn't get a chance to um, uh, discuss. But um, one thing I will say, I don't think really that 
National BLM is the new civil rights. I think they're trying to sell themselves as that because they want to present themselves as part of a lineage. But I actually think, especially because if you read a lot of their histories, a lot of these people grew up mostly around white people or predominantly white (laughs) universities and things like that. And I think a lot of their acculturation and political education kind of came up around white millennials. And then I think they kind of retrofitted themselves into a white history. I mean, into civil rights history. I mm. think your this description of Occupy, I think, actually overlaps more. I think mm. they're a mix of civil rights on the surface with Occupy under. And this is what you say about Occupy, which I think is um, pretty scathing, but I think it applies to them a lot, which is, in many ways, Occupy was the idealist moment, the, per- the performance rather than permanence. In Zuccotti Park or in their hundreds of other locations around the world, they were performing the idea. Occupy was performance art, a grand piece of utopian theater dramatizing the other world that is otherwise out of reach. Here we see the white left at its most stomach churning. Reading, reading through some of the misty-eyed reflections on the movement, they have the feeling of romantic holiday diaries. Nothing may have changed and the movement may have collapsed but no fear, we will always have Zuccotti Park. And I feel like you could substitute Ferguson. We could substitute Ferguson yeah, for true. Zuccotti Park. True. Occupy's horizontal organization involved both the deep narcissism with slogans such as we are our demands, you know, um, which you could say Black Lives Matter is a slogan, mm. and a way of building community that relied on people forming loose connections quickly, which fit perfectly into current times. It was the swipe right of social movements. With no deep ideological commitments, loose connections, and the ability to find fun, some fun elsewhere without feeling guilty, performance over permanence is only an option to those in the land of plenty who have jobs or at least a welfare state to fall back on. And I don't think it maps perfectly because there's mm-hmm. more privilege that an yeah. occupied person has than um, even a middle class black person. But yeah, I do mm-hmm. think a lot of that does apply to um, BLM as as well. I thought that was a great great passage by the way that's my favorite part of the book i think if i'm honest that is that is my favorite part uh, but thank you but no yeah no you're probably right <laughs> the swipe right of social movements is, is brilliant yeah, yeah I, I was impressed i impressed myself with that one there were actually a bit of uh, there are a couple of moments where i spat my tear when i was reading back <laughs> over free. that was that was one of them um but yeah no you're right you could you could i i'm 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 always hesitant to be massively overly like that critical of Black Lives Matter, um, just because I think one of the things it has done is it's got young people out on the street. Um, there's a possibility. I think certainly the critique could hold for definite, but I think there is hopefully a possibility with the young generation that we see out on the streets that it can turn into something else. I think if you're honest about what it is now, maybe maybe it could it could become a more radical movement for social change. And they have and they have forty and they have forty chapters. Ten of them are in open revolt right now and wouldn't even change the name. So I think you're right. I think they did inspire a lot of people, maybe even beyond what they wanted to do. Like when 25% of your local chapters are saying you're not going too far, we got into this because of you, but uh, now we don't like this vague electoralism you're doing and we want to move on to something else. Like I think there is something to that, whether they meant to or not, you know, or whether they went the wrong way or not, they do seem to have uh, hopefully um, politicized a lot of people who might go beyond where they ended up um, going. That's that's my hope. But uh, yeah, if you want to say any final um, thoughts, uh, express anything that maybe we didn't get to cover in the book, because I'll tell people right now, don't think that listening to this will 
be a substitute for reading the book. We only, I don't think we captured 25%, if that, of what's what's in the book. So there's still a lot of stuff that I wasn't sure what to leave. You know, the exact, the exact thing that I'm, I'm impressed with you for, about knowing what to leave out and what to leave <laughs> in. Yeah, I'm not sure uh, if everything I left out, I should have left out. But there's just no way to cover it all like in, in a little over an hour. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the main thing I to stress is... And the book is an uncomfortable book. It is supposed to be that, but it's really, it ends with, like, and when I actually submitted the book to the publishers, they were like, can you be more positive? And then if you actually read the end of the book, it don't sound much more positive. Um, but, what I, but what I want to stress with that is this book is very much a prequel. Like, it's a prequel. This is, the revolution is necessary. It's a, it's about stripping back how we understand things. You're supposed to leave the book uncomfortable. And too many of these books about race now, you're, you leave it happy, like coddly, like I'll just mention me and, me and white supremacy because it's one of the worst books I've ever read in my entire life. Where you know this sort of self help for whiteness, we don't need that. We need to be uncomfortable, and this is what the book's trying to do. Um, but that doesn't mean it's pessimistic. And actually, the when I say it's a prequel, it's a prequel to Back to Black, retelling Black radicalism uh, for the 21st century, which kind of outlines well, what does that mean, right? When you when you're here, what does that mean? Because I wouldn't want anybody to think that there is no alternative. Revolution is necessary and revolution is possible. But the first step is understanding that you can never have, I'll just quote Malcolm to end it because why not? There is no justice for freedom, justice of black people in America. Um, So he says, you can never have just freedom, justice in America, freedom, justice for black people in America in the same way that a chicken can never lay a duck egg. It's just not meant to do it. And once you understand that, we'll be much better off. Mm, very very well said and um yeah uh last thing i'll say is that i did like that it was ended on a positive note but not on a pollyannish uh positive note either it was a very measured uh pragmatic um positive note which was which was i like because i feel like it's always one extreme or the other like i like afro-pessimism and its idea of um capturing the conception of blackness as being kind of a bottom cast. But uh, we had Frank Willison on the show and he, he kind of told me, um, yeah, I don't really think anything can be done. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> that's that's what he said. Oh, that's yeah. the worst. Nah, never. No, no. Black radicalism is not. Basically, that's my big problem with Afro-pessimism. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm not surprised he said it, but I guess I'm a little bit sad. But no, the point of making this argument isn't to say nothing could be done. Look, the West is a blip on the timeline of human history. The West will fall. There's no doubt about it. The question is what will happen after that. And we should always remember that, that, that there is things we can do. And 50 years ago, uh, we, you know, Malcolm's talking about revolution. That was a possibility. Like, it wasn't sure we'd, we'd be here. So in 50 years from now, if we do different things, we could certainly end this. Never never feel there's nothing that we can do. There always is. Yeah, and I was, I was surprised. And for people who listen to the show and wondering um, where he said that, he actually said that off, off the air to me. To me. But, okay. <laughs> but yeah, but yeah uh, I was kind of surprised because I was like, um, okay, so now I understand where a lot of this uh, navel-gazing fatalism from some of the uh, followers of Afro-pessimism comes from i thought they were mm. reading that into the work themselves but it's actually you know baked into it like so i like the framework of it but that that final conclusion i'm not i'm not uh crazy about so yeah i did i did like like how you ended the book and thank you um Kahinde. really appreciate you taking the time on a saturday to um do this and yeah you always you always welcome back if um we'd love to have you uh on on a live stream sometime we do these live streams to talk about like topical like big picture or evergreen stuff like your book or broad topics we do in the podcast but every now and then like in the 
when there's a news topic and stuff, we like to have uh, live streams with people. So we'd love to have you on sometime for one of those or, you know, for one of your follow-up books. You're always welcome back here for sure. Yeah, definitely. I, re- I really enjoyed it. Definitely. Okay. Again. Great. Great. Take care. Have a good one. And everyone out right. there. Um, oh, one more thing. Did you say where to find you on, to contact you if people want to contact you? Like, um, I don't think we said your Twitter, right? People always yeah, so it's at Kaindi, which is K-E-H-I-N-D-E underscore Andrews on Twitter. I think it's the same on Insta. Uh, we also have a website called Make It Plain, which is make-it-plain.org, which is a lot of stuff which I can't write for The Guardian. So it's kind of the whole thing where we write black radical stuff that people can check out as well. Okay, great, great. So everyone out there, have a good one and take care. <laughs>